All right. Genesis chapter 7. Then the Lord said to Noah, Go into the ark, you and all your household, for I have seen that you are righteous before me in this generation. Take with you seven pairs of all clean animals, the male and his mate, and a pair of the animals that are not clean, the male and his mate, and seven pairs of the birds of the heavens also, male and female, to keep their offspring alive on the face of all the earth. For in seven days I will send rain on the earth, forty days and forty nights, and every living thing that I have made I will blot out from the face of the ground. And Noah did all that the Lord had commanded him. Noah was six hundred years old when, he, when the flood waters came upon the earth. And Noah and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him went into the ark to escape the waters of the flood. Of clean animals and of animals that are not clean and of birds and of everything that creeps on the ground, two and two, male and female, went into the ark with Noah as God had commanded Noah. And after seven days, the waters of the flood came upon the earth. In the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, on the 17th day of the month, on that day, all the fountains of the great deep burst forth and the windows of the heavens were open. And rain fell upon the earth 40 days and 40 nights. On the very same day, Noah and his sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, and Noah's wife and the three wives of his sons with them entered the ark they and every beast according to its kind, and all the livestock according to their kinds, and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth according to its kind, and every bird according to its kind, every winged creature. They went into the ark with Noah, two and two of all flesh, in which, were, in which there was the breath of life. And those that entered, male and female, of all flesh, went in as God had commanded him, and the Lord shut him in. The flood continued 40 days on the earth. The waters increased and bore up the ark. It rose up high above the earth. The waters prevailed and increased greatly on the earth, and the ark floated on the face of the waters. And the waters prevailed so mightily on the earth that all the high mountains under the whole heaven were covered. The waters prevailed above the mountains, covering them 15 cubits deep. And all flesh died that moved on the earth, birds, livestock, beasts, all swarming creatures that swarm on the earth, and all mankind, everything on dry land in whose nostrils was the breath of life, died. He blotted out every living thing that was on the face of the ground, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens. They were blotted out from the earth. Only Noah was left and those who were with him in the ark, and the waters prevailed on the earth 150 days. Okay. So this is sort of the counterpart or the con continuation, if you will, of last time. Last time we looked at verses 9 through 22 of chapter 6, and it picks up on how um, God is telling uh, Noah that he's going to bring judgment upon the earth for the wickedness that is growing upon the earth. Uh, he saw that the earth, if you see in verse 11, he saw that the earth was corrupt and filled with violence. It was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And God says, I have uh, determined to make an end of all flesh. So God makes a judgment. He sees the sin that is spread in his good creation. And now, uh, because he is of pure eyes and to look upon sin, he pronounces judgment on the earth. But he preserves Noah. Why? Because 
Noah was righteous. Noah was a righteous man. We saw that at the end of the last section, even before that, verse 8, Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. And in verse 9, Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. So God preserves the human race through Noah and his wife and his three sons and the son, the wives of his three sons. Those are the only eight people preserved through this judgment or will be preserved through this judgment. And what God uh, does then is he commands Noah to build an ark. He gives him the instructions. How long is it going to be? How high? How wide? What is it going to be made of? How many levels? So on and so forth. He gives him the directions. Uh, I don't presume to even uh, pretend to think that the, you know, what you, we see here in the Bible is a complete uh, blueprint of the ark. It's just the basic uh, dimensions of the ark. But you know, when, you, when you consider the dimensions of the ark, it's a huge vessel, right? I mean, it's, it's more than you know, a football field and a half long. Uh, it's very wide and it's very tall. It's got three levels. Uh, it's, uh, and, and like I said, when we go to the Ark Encounter, if you're coming on the trip with us, you're going to see a life-sized replica of the Ark, at least you know, how they believe it would have been shaped and everything. And, it's, and I would imagine, I haven't seen it yet, but I would imagine when you stand by, you're going to be like, wow, that thing is huge. You know, that thing is really, really, really big. Uh, again, it kind of counters all those silly little things you see in kids' books of the Ark is this you know, itty-bitty little boat bouncing around on the waves with, you know, a giraffe sticking his head through the, <laughs> through the portal and elephants kind of like, you know, like, no, 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 this is not some little, little boat. This is a big thing. We also saw that God co- uh, establishes a covenant with Mo- uh, Noah. I keep wanting to say Moses. Uh, he establishes a covenant with Noah. Uh, we get the details of the covenant later in chapter 8 and 9 after Noah has landed and is off the ark. But he covenants with him. And a covenant, of course, is a solemn agreement between two parties, in this case, God and Noah. And uh, when we look at the details of the covenant in uh, coming lessons, we're going to see that this is not a, uh, what we would call a salvific covenant. It's not a covenant of salvation. It's a covenant of, in a sense, preservation. It's a covenant in which God is going to show common grace to the, to the human race and to the world. He promises not to destroy uh, the earth in the waters of a flood anymore. And that he promises the continuation of seasons and the continual operation of the laws of nature, so on and so forth. So in that sense, he covenants to never again destroy the earth with a flood. Uh, but that covenant, we'll, we'll look at that more deeply when we get to it. So God promises judgment, God uh, covenants with Noah, and we see that God will preserve Noah. And then we're going to see this flesh itself out more in chapter 7. As chapter 7, actually, we see the, the, the flood coming, right? Judgment was promised in the previous section. Judgment is going to be enacted in the section we're looking at tonight. As we will see here, you're going to see, um, again, Noah, Noah's obedience is commended. Uh, you're going to see cataclysm as the floodwaters come and, and uh, the earth breaks apart in a way. And then you're going to see preservation uh, in this section as God preserves Noah and his family and those, those uh, seven pairs of clean animals and one pair of every other animal uh, is on the ark. There's a preservation there on the ark. Uh, that's what we're going to see tonight. So the theme for tonight 
is that the global flood was an event of cataclysmic proportions, but through it all, God will save his remnant. This is a theme you see in various other places played out in Scripture, that God brings judgment but preserves a remnant. We're going to see it again uh, in Genesis 18:19, when God sees the wickedness of Sodom and Gomorrah. He brings judgment upon them. But what does he do? He preserves the remnant. He preserves Lot and his family. Uh, in fact, when Abraham is bargaining, if you will, with God, you know, God promises. He says, no, I won't destroy the city if I find 50 righteous people. And, you know, all the way down to, no, I won't destroy the city if I find 10 righteous people. And that's when Abraham stops and, and God stops um, bargaining with him because there's not 10 righteous people in Sodom, right? It's just Lot, his wife, his uh, couple, and his two daughters. His, I don't think his daughter's husbands even come along on them. So, yeah, four people are preserved, but God does preserve his remnant even though judgment comes. So we're going to look at this in three parts. First, we're going to see God's command to Noah. So the last time um, God commanded Noah to build the ark, now he tells Noah to go into the ark. So we see that in verses 1 through 5. Then the Lord said to Noah, Go into the ark, you and all your household, for I have seen that you are righteous before me in this generation. Take with you seven pairs of all clean animals, the male and his mate, and a pair of the animals that are not clean, the male and his mate, and seven pairs of the birds of the heavens also, male and female, to keep their offspring alive on the face of all the earth. For in seven days I will send rain on the earth, forty days and forty nights, and every living thing that I have made I will blot out from the face of the ground. And here you see Noah's obedience, just as you see at the end of chapter 6. Here you see it in chapter 7, verse 5. And Noah did all that the Lord commanded him. Now, when we say Noah built the ark, right, and we say it took 120 years, we should not presume that Noah literally built the ark all by himself, okay? Because <laughs> consider what the Bible says elsewhere, right? The Bible says in 1 Kings that Solomon built the temple. All right, how many people here think that Solomon lifted a single hammer or a single chisel or anything to, to make that temple, right? No. In other words, Solomon commanded other people and they built the temple, but because he was king, we often refer to that Solomon built the temple. To take a more contemporary example, in 2016, President Trump promised to build a wall. Did President Trump go out there with hammer and nails and literally start putting up boards to build the wall? No, okay? It was built by, you know, the government. So Noah, now... Noah probably helped build the ark, but he also had three sons, right? And he probably also contracted people to help him build the ark. This is an enormous undertaking. So when we say Noah built the ark, we, what we mean is that Noah uh, oversaw and helped in the construction of the ark. But what you see here, if you remember from the last time or time before that, uh, the Lord says that he will... Basically, the days of man are 120 years. His days shall be 120 years. And we saw that that was sort of like a grace period. Not only was it a grace period for Noah to build the ark, but it was also a grace period given to the people that were there to repent, right? I mean, to, to see what was coming. The building of the ark, in a sense, is a proclamation that judgment is coming. 
Because when people go by and they say, Noah, what are you doing? Well, I'm building an ark. I say, well, what's the ark for? Well, God's going to send rain. Well, what's rain? Well, it's a lot of water. It's going to come down, and there's going to be a flood, and it's going to destroy everything. And you're like, really? It's like, yeah. Well, how do you know? Well, God told me. God who? Well, the one who created all things. Oh, Noah, you're crazy. I mean, I can imagine conversations probably going on like that, right? So for 120 years, people saw Noah building this enormous vessel. For 120 years, God held back his wrath until we see here in chapter 7. When the time for judgment comes, God says, okay, it is time now to get into the ark. It is time to take you, your wife, your three sons, your son's wives, and all the animals I'm about to send to you and get into the ark because the rain, well, it's a coming, right? <laughs> the rain is a coming. Farmers, you've been wanting rain. Well, you don't want this kind of rain, okay? <laughs> this kind of rain will wipe out your crop and it will destroy everything. This is the kind of rain that you don't want to see. And he gives them seven days. Seven days. Of course, you know, you can... You know, make what you will of that number. Seven usually means, you know, completion, perfection. But the point is, it's a seven-day grace period for people to get into the ark. Now, Noah, of course, you know, the, the, the author here, uh, Moses, he mentions again that the Lord says, For I have seen that you are righteous before me in this generation. Very similar to what he saw, what we saw earlier in chapter 6, verse 9, that Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Again, Noah is, well, I mean, for lack of a better phrase, Noah is, is it, <laughs> right? He's the only one that God looks upon and sees, sees, uh, sees him with favor, right? Um, you know, not even quite sure, you know, we don't, we're not told about the state of his wife and his sons, but presume that, you know, because Noah was a righteous man, God saves him and his family. They were probably believers too, more than likely. But we learn that he was righteous in his generation. In other words, righteous among all the other people that are there on the earth at this time. And that would kind of seem to stand to reason considering what the descriptions we see earlier where the whole world is filled with violence. The whole world has corrupted their way. Every thought and intentions of their heart are only evil all the time, we see over and over again. So Noah is righteous. Now, again, this is not, he's not inherently righteous. He's not sinlessly righteous. He's not blameless in the sense that he's perfect. He is righteous because of his faith. We looked at this last time. Noah was a man of faith. Uh, Noah was a man who, who heard God and believed him, Right? Uh, we saw that in Hebrews 6. If you want to please God, you have to believe that he exists, right? You have to have faith. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. So again, compared to all the wickedness that has filled the earth, Noah is the only one here who has found favor in the eyes of the Lord. That's a typical phrase you see in the Old Testament. It's a, just a Hebrew way of saying that when God looks upon Noah, he sees he just he looks favorably upon him, and of course, then the ark um, is a symbol of God's salvation amid the judgment that is about to fall upon the earth. This ark is going to save the remnant. This ark is going to save the remnant of humanity. It's going to save the the uh, various uh, representative kinds that that are on the ark as well, the animals, so that they will be able to uh, be preserved through the judgment. 
And this is, it's a symbol of God's salvation. Um, if you will, please uh, keep your finger in Genesis 7. I want to look at Psalm 91. I'm going to look at a couple of passages here, but Psalm 91 in particular Psalm 91 is in book 4 of the salt of the Psalter. The Psalter is broken out into 5 books. Psalm 90 of course is the Psalm of Moses, a prayer of Moses, but Psalm 91 it's unattributed so we don't know who the author is. Well, we don't know who the human author is. We know who the author is, right? It's the Holy Spirit, right? But in Psalm 91 this is a great psalm of preservation where here the psalmist says, "He who dwells in the shelter of the most high will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say to the Lord, my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust, for he will deliver you from the snare of the fowler and from the deadly pestilence. He will cover you with his pinions, and under his wings you will find refuge. I love that picture of God as a giant eagle covering us with his wings, sort of like a, you know, a bird covers its, its chicks. His faithfulness is a shield and buckler. You will not fear the terror of the night, nor the arrow that flies by day, nor the pestilence that stalks in darkness, nor the destruction that wastes at noonday. A thousand may fall at your side, ten thousand at your right hand, but it will not come near you. You will only look with your eyes and see the recompense of the wicked. Because you have made the Lord your dwelling place, the Most High, who is my refuge, no evil shall be allowed to befall you. No plague come near your tent. And I could go on, but here the psalmist is talking about the Lord as his refuge. The Lord is his safe place, if you will. The Lord is his shield and buckler. You know, all of these, these metaphors that speak of God protecting us. Another great passage is found in Proverbs 18. Proverbs 18, verse 10. And you probably know this verse. If, not, if you don't know the reference, you know the verse. You've heard this one, I'm sure. Proverbs 18, verse 10. The name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous man runs into it and is safe. The name of the Lord is a strong tower. The Lord protects those who run to him. I remember a friend of mine had this, it was a print. It was a, you know, a picture, a print. But it was a picture of a lighthouse. Okay, And in this giant lighthouse, there's a little door. And the little door is a little man sipping coffee. And around the giant lighthouse is this enormous wave crashing into this lighthouse. And the guy sitting there in the door is just calmly drinking his coffee. And it has the verse of Proverbs 18.10 emblazoned along the bottom. The, the name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous man runs into it and is safe. I always love that picture. And I always love what that picture represents. The idea that the Lord is the one who protects us. And the righteous man, what does he do? Well, he runs to the Lord, right? He's not going to be preserved in his own power, in his own strength. He's going to be preserved because the Lord preserves him. Now, one more passage which doesn't talk about the Lord's 
preservation, but talks about the swiftness of the judgment is found in Matthew 24. And I think what makes this passage so important is Matthew 24 and 25, if you're familiar with that, that is Jesus' Olivet Discourse. We looked a little bit at this when we were looking at the book of Revelation. It's a long answer that Jesus gives to a couple of short questions that the disciples ask him. The disciples ask him, because when he, he mentions that the, the, the disciples are walking by and they see the temple, and the disciples are marveling, look at the temple, look how wonderful the temple is. And Jesus says, uh, do you consider this temple to be so special? He says, not one stone will be upon another uh, in, in, in a short period of time. And the, and the disciples are like, what do you mean? You know, so, they, so they ask him a couple of questions. When will this take place? And what will be the sign of your coming? And so on and so forth. So Jesus gives them a very long answer to that question. And uh, this is Jesus' own words about the coming judgment and his return. And in chapter 24, starting in... Uh, well, let's start in verse 36. So Jesus gives them a bunch of signs. He says, these are, there, these are things that you're going to see happening before my return, but my return is not yet coming. And he says, but when you see these signs, you know that it's coming near. But then in verse 36, but concerning the day or the hour. So if you want to know the specific, like, when... You know, give me the date and time this is going to happen. Jesus says, no one knows this. No one knows the day or the hour, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. And then here we go, verse 37. As were the days of Noah, so will the coming of the Son of Man be. For as in those days before the flood, what were they doing? They were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark. That's what we're talking about here. As Noah's walking to the ark, what are the people doing? Well, they're living life. They're partying. They're, you know, they have, no, they have no idea that judgment's coming. They have not been listening to Noah. They have not been heeding the, the presentation that, that Noah's building of the ark means. So, until Noah entered the ark. And they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away so will be the coming of the Son of Man. So Jesus is saying, just like it was in the days of Noah, so will my coming be. In other words, it's going to catch a whole bunch of people off guard. People are going to be like, what do you mean judgment's coming, right? What do you mean the day of the Lord is near? And all of a sudden, boom, here comes the day of the Lord, and they're going to be caught off guard. But the ark is a symbol of God's salvation as Noah enters the ark, we know that he will be preserved in all of this. Now, a couple other things to note here that you see in the first five verses. You see here this designation of clean and unclean animals. Take with you seven pairs of clean animals, and you know, the unclean animals will just take one pair. Like, well, what's going on here? Um, well, I would imagine whatever designates a clean animal versus an unclean animal, God would have told Noah what that meant, or at least Noah would have figured it out when he saw, oh, here comes seven pairs of cows. Okay, well, they must be clean. Here comes one pair of lions. Okay, well, they're not clean. I mean, you could probably figure that, <laughs> you know, you could probably you know, noodle that one out. But uh, this, 
you have to remember again, who is this written by and who is this written to? Who is it written by? Moses, who is it written to? What's that? The Israelites. And where are they right now? They're, they're, on the, they're getting ready to enter the promised land, right? So by this time, they would know what clean and unclean is. Why? Well, because in Leviticus 11, God tells them what is clean and unclean. He has to part the hoof, has to chew the cud, has to do this, that, and the other thing. And, and this has kind of baffled scholars um, for a long time. Like, what is the designation between clean and unclean? Some think it has to do with hygiene. Some think it has to do with trying to separate yourself from the Canaanites. I don't know. <laughs> you know, God knows. Yeah. So the question, if you didn't hear that, is it have to do with the cloven hoof of the animals? In a lot of ways, yeah, because God will tell you uh, when he says uh, this animal is clean, it's because it parts the hoof, right? But then there's some animals that part the hoof but don't chew the cud, like the rabbit or some other thing. So, so not everything that parts the hoof is clean. Um, here, you have to understand, I guess, from, from an Old Testament perspective, Cleanness, uncleanness. This, these are ritual ways of talking. This is a way of, of communicating who can enter into the presence of God and who cannot. Who can enter into and worship God and who cannot. If you are ritually clean, then you are allowed to enter into worship. If you are unclean because you either touched something that was unclean or you touched a dead body... Some people think that uncleanness has to do with death because there's a, an association with death there. Um, if you are unclean, you're not allowed to come near. You have to separate yourself for a period of time, and you might have to perform some ritual to become clean again. Think about when in, in the Gospels when Jesus meets a leper. Right, The leper would be unclean from a Jewish perspective. Why? Because he's got a skin disease, and he cannot come into contact with anybody. When Jesus cleanses people, oftentimes he tells them what? Go show yourself to the, to, the, to the leadership. I am clean now, because that's what they were supposed to do. Once they've been, you know, once the disease is gone and they've waited seven days and they've done whatever they need to do, they have to go to the priest and the priest will pronounce them clean. Well, Jesus says, you know, you don't have to do that ritual anymore. I have made you clean. I have touched you. You have become clean. Go show yourself to the priest. So this idea of clean and unclean has to do with ritual cleanliness, and it's supposed to point, in a sense, to the moral realm as well, right? Just as you are to be ritually clean before the Lord, you have to be morally pure before the Lord. So there's this way of kind of, you know, these levels, if you will. There's the holy, there's the clean, and then there's the unclean uh, in Jewish understanding. But in the case here of what it means here for Noah's, What's, well, what's going to happen at some point? Well, A, he's got to eat, right? And B, what happens when, when the ark settles and he comes off the ark? What does he do? He offers a sacrifice. He's going to offer the clean animals as a sacrifice. So there's a few extra pair of clean animals so that they can, A, eat, and B, sacrifice something when they get off the ark. Now, we talked about this last time. We asked this question. Um, because this is something, this is something that the, the skeptics will come up and say, well, how did Noah get all those animals on the ark? Okay, well, 
Noah didn't go running around for 120 years gathering pairs of animals, okay? The animals were sent by the Lord, right? The Lord sent them. Um, and that's what we see here. Um, uh, all, all the animals will come to him. They come to him. Uh, and he puts them on the ark. Um, you also have to realize, too, you know, because they say, well, how did the kangaroos get there from Australia? Well, okay. <laughs> let's, let's slow down a bit here, okay? <laughs> you know, what are the odds that the earth, the face of the earth, looks like it does now back then? You know, probably not very high. Um, when we get to it, we're going to look at it tonight. When we see what is happening on the face of the earth, it, this is, it's not just rain, okay? There's, there's some, some high, heavy, seismic activity taking place here. Um, I, I, this is just my thoughts. I believe that before the flood, the continent was, you know, the earth, the land, dry land, was one continent, one big parcel of dry land, because that's what we, if you remember back in chapter 1, when God separates the waters from the earth, he says in chapter 1, verse 9, let the waters under the heavens be gathered into one place and let the dry land appear. And it was so. God called the dry land earth and the waters were gathered together, those he called the seas. And he saw that it was good. So my guess is that, you know, the, the face of the earth was covered with water and then God commanded it, and the water uh, gave way and the dry land appeared and there was one big giant continent. And, and this is not just me guessing out of pure blue. A lot of people think that at one point there was a, you know, that the continents were one piece of land. There's, there's a, it's, it's, in fact, they have a name for it. It's called Pangaea. One earth, or all the earth. Uh, and then, you know, when, when the seismic activity happened, well, it broke those apart, and then you get the continental drift. I mean, really, if you look at, you know, look at the continents, you look at North America, South America, Africa, and Europe, they kind of fit together like puzzle, you know, puzzle pieces. And I say all that because it wasn't like Noah had to, you know, from somewhere in Mesopotamia, run across Asia, go over to, you know, what would be, you know, today Cambodia, hop on a boat, go to Australia, pick up some kangaroos, get back on there, and then come all the way back to Mesopotamia. He didn't have to do that, okay? He didn't have to cross land or sea. These animals came to him. And it's, and it's not every species either. That's another uh, common critique. Well, there's like, you know, 8,000 million billion species or whatever the number is. And it's like, no, well, here we talk about kinds. These are representative kinds that would carry all of the genetic information that you would need in order to create the various species that we see now. I mean... We do this now, right? You know, you get these, you know, abomination dog breeds like the Labradoodle or the, <laughs> or, or the, you know, you know, where where you mix anything with a poodle, okay? <laughs> right? You know, that's that's kind of, you know, we can make new species by breeding uh, two different um, dog types together. Anyway, if you have a Labradoodle, I wasn't, I didn't mean to insult your 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 precious pet. <laughs> Um, I'm sure your dog is fine. So, the Lord now next tells Noah that seven days he's going to send rain on the earth. And the, the way that's rendered in the, in the Hebrew there, it's God is causing the rain to fall. It's not I will send rain, it's I will make it rain is what it really should be saying. 
I will make the rain come down. God is in control of the weather. God is in control of the climate. There's not going to be a climate catastrophe unless God commands it. All right, so you've got all these people running around about climate change this, climate change that. The world's going to be destroyed. We're going to destroy it. No, we're not. (laughs) No, we're not. Do you honestly really think that human beings could destroy the earth? No. God controls the climate. This is climate worship versus the worship of the one true God. God is going to cause it to rain. And the length of the rain here is going to be 40 days and 40 nights. This is also a a significant number that we see uh, in Scripture. Um, 40 days, 40 nights. It's usually associated with a time of trial or a time of testing. Um, Noah, or sorry, Moses was up on Mount Sinai receiving the law 40 days and 40 nights. When Elijah was running from uh, Jezebel and, and Ahab, he was sustained by the angels of the Lord so he could run for 40 days and 40 nights. This is 1 Kings 19. Our Lord Jesus, after 40 days and 40 nights of fasting, he was tempted by Satan in the wilderness. Matthew 3.13 and following. So this idea of 40 days and 40 nights, it's a biblical time number associated with trial and testing. And just as we saw at the end of chapter 6, where there we see Noah did this, he did all that the Lord commanded, that's what we see at verse 5. God tells Noah, go on the boat and bring the animals with you, and and Noah did all that the Lord commanded him. Now, I hadn't made mention of this um, earlier, but notice whenever you see Lord in chapter 6, in chapter 7, and even in chapter 2, it's capitalized, right? In your Bible, is it capitalized, right? In that little, you know, big L, you know, and then it's capital, but sometimes the O-R-D is a little bit smaller. Uh, now, if you know what that is, right? I mean, that, that's, that's the translation of the covenant name of the Lord, okay? Uh, it, it would be Yahweh, Jehovah. Uh, oftentimes, it's just rendered as Lord. The reason behind that is because, you know, the ancient Hebrews would not say the name Yahweh. They would not say his covenant name for fear of uh, breaking the third commandment and taking his name in vain. So whenever they said, whenever in the Hebrew Bible, whenever they come across the uh, covenant name of the Lord, they say Adonai, which means Lord, <laughs> which means sovereign God. Well, you get this here. This is God's covenant name. Well, he hasn't given his name yet, right? He gives that to Moses in Exodus 3. Okay, right. Who's writing this book? Moses, okay. He's writing it to the covenant people of God. So he's writing this well after the events of Exodus 3. But he's inserting here, by the, you know, the, the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he's inserting here the covenant name of the Lord. The very same God who is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and, and Jacob is the God of Moses. Or in the, in the God of Noah. So here he is. This is the covenant Lord. He, uh, Noah did everything the Lord commanded him. So again, remember when we looked at Matthew 24, Jesus compares the generation at the end of the age when judgment comes on the day of the Lord to the generation of Noah. 
And what was happening then? Well, people were just kind of living it up until judgment came. And, and really, in a sense, the lesson you kind of get there is that no one ever thinks judgment is coming until what? When it comes. <laughs> right? right? That, that's the idea. The, the wicked, in a sense, are blissfully ignorant. They are living their lives. They think they can do whatever they want. There's no consequences for my actions. I can do whatever I want. And if we have not seen that before, we certainly see it now, right? There's been so many things that have happened in the last 50, 60, 70 years, all in an attempt to remove the consequences of our actions, right? It used to be if you fooled around, you got pregnant, guess what? You had to get married. Well, now you don't have to do that anymore, right? You could just, I want to go abort my baby, or I want to go do this, I want to go do that. Where we are trying to remove the consequences of our actions. Well, no one ever, ever thinks judgment is coming until it actually does. So what happens now? Well, looking at verses 6 through 16, we see the rains of judgment come down. After seven days, Noah and his family entered the ark, and this is... And all this happened when Noah was 600 years old. So, now the last time we saw Noah at the end of chapter 5, we were told that he was 500 years old uh, then, but now he's 600 years old. Well, you know, remember, 120 years. And then, of course, God sends the the clean and the unclean animals. So, uh, verse 6, Noah was 600 years old when the flood waters came upon the earth, and Noah and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives went with him into the ark to escape the waters of the flood of clean animals and of animals that are not clean and of birds and of everything that creeps in the ground. Two by two, male and female, went into the ark with Noah as God had commanded Noah. And after seven days, the waters of the flood came upon the earth. So the seven days after the Lord's initial warning, we were told that the flood waters, the, the flood deluge, that word in the Hebrew is only used here when we're talking about the flood of Noah, the, the deluge. Uh, the, the flood of waters, however you want to say it, it came upon the earth. And note too in verse 11, the specific time markers. In the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, and the 17th day of the month. You often see that like in prophetic writings, right? You know, this you know, prophet such and such happened on this day, this month, this year. In a lot of ways, what this does is it indicates this is an actual historical event, Right? Um, these time markers indicate that it's a historical event. Um, But when that happened, we're told here, uh, the flood of waters came upon the earth, uh, sorry, verse 11, in the 600 year of Noah's life, so on and so forth, on that day, all the fountains of the great deep burst forth and the windows of the heavens were opened. Now this is poetic language in a way. But it's, it's suggestive not only that there was rain, the windows of the heavens were opened, but it's also suggestive that there was great seismic activity as the waters of the deep burst forth. The underground fountains, the underground reservoirs, you know, the, you know a giant earthquake happens and, and these waters burst forth. And think about it, whenever there's a giant earthquake, what happens with the water? Well, you get tsunamis, right? You get waves, you get earthquakes, water falls down into the molten crust and becomes steam, and the steam shoots up into the sky, and then it recrystallizes and falls back down as rain. You got a lot of rain, so not only is it raining, but then it continue, you get this continual rain as this water steam goes up and comes back down as rain. This is cataclysm. We are talking 
not just a little bit, you know, not just a long rain shower, okay? We're not just talking a little shaking of the earth here. We're talking a great cataclysmic event. And to create the kind of judgment we're seeing here has to be more than just rain for 40 days. In a sense, what you're seeing here is a return of the earth to its primordial state. What happens when God creates the heavens and the earth? Well, it says that the earth was without form and void. You remember that means that it was uninhabited and it was unordered. When we looked at that back then, in darkness was over the face of the deep and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. In a sense, this flood returns the earth to its primordial state. And then verses 12 through 16 kind of repeat in a way what we saw earlier in, chapter, in verses 6 through 10. And rain fell upon the earth 40 days and 40 nights. On the very same day, Noah and his sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, and Noah's wife and his three wives, and, and uh, the three wives of his sons with them, entered the ark. They and every beast according to its kind, and all livestock according to their kind, and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth according to its kind, and every bird according to its kind, every winged creature. They went into the ark with Noah, two and two of all flesh, in which there was the breath of life. And those that entered, male and female, of all flesh went in as God had commanded him, and the Lord shut him in. How come we don't mention fish or sea creatures? They live in the water, right? Okay. All right, I can't pull one over on you guys. You guys are way too sharp tonight. All right. Yeah, you don't need to bring the... In fact, if you bring the fish on the ark, that's a judgment against the fish. They'll be flopping around on the, unless they have little goldfish bowls or whatever in there. So you have all of this happening. Everything enters the ark. Everything with the breath of life. And then you see that phrase there, the Lord shut him in. And again, this is part and parcel with the Lord saving his remnant. Um, again, another psalm that suggests this. Psalm 46. This is, uh, I think I preached this one um, about two years ago. It's a song of the sons of Korah. It's the 46th Psalm. It's the one that Martin Luther was inspired to turn into the song, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. Um, and whenever uh, Philip Melanchthon, you, know, you guys know who Philip Melanchthon is? That was uh, Martin Luther's buddy, his, his protege. Um, Whenever, whenever Philip was feeling a little distressed, Martin would say, Philip, let us sing the 46th. Let us sing the 46th and let us uh, encourage one another with these words. And again, it's this, refer- this is kind of reminiscent of what we were talking about earlier about the ark being the ark of salvation. But the Lord shuts him in the ark. And, and he, you know, with that in mind, hear these words. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. There is a river whose stream makes glad the city of God, the holy mountain of the Most High, the holy habitation of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. The nations rage, the kingdoms totter, he utters his voice, the earth melts. The Lord of hosts is with us, the God of Jacob is our fortress. 
Come, behold the works of the Lord, how He has brought desolations on the earth. He makes wars cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the chariots with fire. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. I can almost imagine Noah in the ark singing this. Okay, Yes, I know, it wasn't written yet. But singing something like this. You could say, a mighty ark is our God. He shuts us in. And though the waves roar, and though the mountains are covered with water, and though all life on earth departs and is dead, we are kept safe because the Lord is our fortress. The Lord is our ark of salvation. The Lord ensures the safety of His remnant. The Lord will protect those who are His. The Lord knows how to save those from judgment who are His. The Lord is not indiscriminate when He brings judgment. So now very quickly as we get close to the end here, verses 17 through 24 now, we see preserved in the ark. The rest of this passage really just tells us the extent of the flood as the waters continued for 40 days and 40 nights. The flood continued 40 days on the earth. Water, the waters increased and bore up the ark, and it rose high above the earth. The waters prevailed and increased greatly on the earth, and the ark floated on the face of the waters. And the waters prevailed so mightily on the earth that all the high mountains under the whole heaven were covered. The waters prevailed above the mountains, covering them 15 cubits deep. And all flesh died that moved on the earth, birds, livestock, beasts, all swarming creatures that swarm on the earth and all mankind. Everything on the dry land in whose nostrils was the breath of life died. He blotted out every living thing that was on the face of the ground, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens. They were blotted out from the earth. Only Noah was left and those who were with him on the ark. And the waters prevailed on earth 150 days. So we see here that the rain continued for the 40 days. It rose high above the earth. In verse 20, we learn that the waters prevailed above the mountains, 15 cubits. I already did the math, so it's in here in my notes. That's 22 and a half feet, in case you were wondering. <laughs> um, some argue that the flood was local, but this suggests a global flood, right? You got water that's 22 and a half feet above the highest mountain. Now, again, remember, geology of the earth back then was different than the geology of the earth now. More than likely, these mountains that we're talking about were probably not very tall. You probably didn't have any ever-sized mountains yet. But whatever mountains and hills you did have were covered by the flood to the height of 22 and a half feet, give or take. This was a global flood. Most people who put forth a local flood explanation do so in order to sort of get around some of this, to get around uh, these things. Because what's going to happen in a flood of this massive proportions? Well, with all the seismic activity you're take, you, know, you have going on and all the water and everything, and when it recedes after a period of time, you're going to have sediment laid. You're going to have all these layers laid. You're going to have all of this uh, all of these fossils preserved, right? But because of the way the modern mind thinks, is fossils form over a long period of time. No, fossils form very rapidly as, as, as they're buried in mud underwater um, in a very uh, brief period of time. In fact, 
I may have mentioned this before, there was um, it's a free YouTube video called Is Genesis History? And I watched that, and one of the things they were talking about was the fossil record. And they actually have fossils of, fossilized animals of one animal eating another one. You can literally see the one mouth almost engulfing half of the other animal. And that's how it was fossilized. Okay, so what you're telling me then, if, if fossils form over a long period of time, that poor schmuck had this thing in his mouth for eons waiting to be fossilized. Is, you know, I mean, it would have dissolved. It would have decayed by then. No, this guy, this poor guy had his lunch in his mouth and was quickly buried uh, under a lot of mud and water very, very rapidly. This was a global flood. This was a global, global flood. 2 Peter 3.6 also suggest this. For they deliberately overlooked this fact that the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God. That's 2 Peter 3, 5. And that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. The world that existed back then was covered with floodwaters. It was deluged and ceased to exist. I mean, here's a question. If the flood were local, if it was just to that period of time, or that, that general region where Noah was, why didn't God just say to Noah, Noah, pack up your family and move. <laughs> the flood's coming to this region. He had 120 years. I mean, think about how far you can travel even on foot for 120 years. You can get far beyond whatever region is going to get flooded at that time. Now what we see here is that Noah is shut in the ark. The floodwaters come. This great cataclysm happens. Water covers the entire earth. And everything that was not in the ark died. Everything that was not preserved on the ark, everything that had the breath of life died. Man and beast So the judgment that we see promised in chapter 6 comes upon the earth in chapter 7. Again, remember, God is not slow regarding his promises. He promises a judgment yet to come, yet we haven't seen it for a while. And that's what makes the mockers mock, right? They say, where's your God? Where's your judgment? It's been how many, you know, how long has it been since Jesus promised he would return? Well, the Lord is not slow regarding his promises. Judgment will come. I mentioned this last time, but it bears repeating. The flood, as devastating as it was back then, is just a foretaste of what's going to happen to humanity at the return of Christ. That's, that's the picture, right? I mean, that's why Jesus refers to the flood. The flood was a great cataclysmic event of judgment, a day of the Lord, if you will, for the Old Testament. That's what's going to happen when Christ returns. But it's going to be far worse Right, Because that's almost always how it is. Whatever is pictured in the Old Testament has a reality that is far more full and rich and consummated when it comes at the end of days. So what happened to the earth back then is just a small taste of what awaits humanity at the return of Christ. But as we mentioned earlier, the wicked, they are in a sense blissfully ignorant of that. People do not think that their actions will have any consequences. People think that if I don't get caught in this lifetime, then I've gotten away with it, right? <laughs> think of all the way 
you know, all the people who think they've gotten away with something and then they die, well, you know, and, and we think here, we, we're on this side of the, uh, of the veil, and we're like, man, that man escaped justice. No, he didn't. <laughs> he did not escape justice, because what awaits for him on the other side is far, far worse than anything he would have faced in this world. We seldom think our actions will incur divine consequences until they do. But the good news, of course, is that God will not judge the righteous among the wicked. That's the whole point of this passage. God preserves Noah through all of this. The righteous will be preserved. The, again, God's judgment is not indiscriminate. He, is, he, he, he executes judgment with surgical precision, if you will. The righteous will not be judged. The problem is no one is righteous in themselves, right? That's what Paul says in Romans 3. Not one is righteous, no, not one. But by faith you are righteous. Hebrews eleven six. Without faith it is impossible to please God, for whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. Verse 7, by faith Noah. This is how Noah was found favor in the eyes of the Lord, because he had faith. By faith, Noah being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen. Again, that's that idea of faith. Faith trusts God at his word. God said a flood was coming. Noah had no concept of what a flood was. He says, so he believed God regarding events yet unseen. In reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. And then by this, he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. That is how we are saved. We are saved by a righteousness that comes by faith. It's, I said this in the sermon earlier this morning, but in Philippians 3, when Paul talks about his resume, at the end of that, he says, I count everything a loss as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for his sake I suffer the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. I want Christ, so I am willing to give up everything. And to be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own, because that's worth nothing, that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Jesus Christ is our ark of salvation. We escape the coming judgment because we are united to Christ, again, by faith. That's how we escape the judgment. That's how God preserves those who are his, because we, in a sense, enter into the ark of Christ, and then God shuts the doors, and we are preserved safe in Christ.